Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. And we are going to read from verse 1 to verse 15. 1 to 15. Verse 1. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came unto him, testing him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. They said unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? And he said unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. And whoso marries her which is put away, doth commit adultery. His disciples said unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs who were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs who were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Then there were brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Allow the little children, and forbid them not, to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we approach this powerful, rich, mysterious passage in your word, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice from heaven, to realize that we're not reading the words of men, but the words of your Son, the very Word of God to us. And give us ears, Lord, fill us with the Holy Spirit to hear and to realize, Lord, that we're hearing from you. Help us to hear your voice this morning and that you'd be honored and glorified for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, we see in verse 1 and 2 that Jesus' time in Galilee has now come to an end. Most of the whole book of Matthew, Jesus has been ministering in Galilee. And you can kind of put together Jesus' ministry that he spent most of those three years of ministry in Galilee. Now, we know that he would go to the feasts when he was supposed to, uh, to Jerusalem, but he would leave. Jesus did not spend much time at all in Judea, or in, in the land around Jerusalem and in Jerusalem. Most of his whole time was in the backwoods of Galilee. 
And now we see Jesus leaving Galilee and making his way to Jerusalem where he's going to face the cross. And if you put together the Gospels, the disciples are questioning the wisdom of him going to Jerusalem because they know if he goes to Jerusalem, there's going to be trouble. And Jesus is actually going to Jerusalem for that very purpose, to face the cross. Chapters 19 and 20 takes up his journey to Judea. And when we reach chapter 21, we reach the triumphal entry of Jesus, and then from there on, his final week in Jerusalem. His final explosive week in Jerusalem. And as the shadow of Jesus' cross grows larger upon him, the conflict with the Pharisees has already intensified to a fevered pitch. At this point in the ministry of Jesus, he and the Pharisees are not trying to figure one another out. Of course, Jesus already had figured them out from the beginning. They, of course, had to try to figure him out. And at this point, they figured him out, and they figure he needs to die. We've already seen this earlier in Matthew, where they are seeking to destroy him. The Pharisees already hate Jesus because of what he taught about righteousness and what he taught about the law, and therefore, in teaching those things, what he taught the people about them. They hated him. And so in verse 3, when the Pharisees come to Jesus, they don't come to him with a simple question or a sincere question. They come to him with a test or a trap. They want to trap him. In trapping him, they want to destroy him. They want to find an occasion to destroy him. Number one, maybe we can find a problem in his teaching that goes against the law. And if we can find some problem in his teaching that goes against the law, then we can accuse him as a false teacher. Or maybe we can get him to say something that would make him odious to the people. Maybe it's not against the law, but maybe we can get him to say something that would make him unpopular. A tactic that's still employed today. Many people today try to find something in the words of Jesus where they can say, look, he's a false teacher, or look at this. Do you really like this? Why would we follow Jesus? He's saying something we don't like, right? It's all so that men won't believe in him. It's all so that we can do away with Jesus. And what better hot topic than divorce, right? So they come to Jesus with a question about divorce. Sensitive, controversial, it was then as it is today, the subject of divorce. And it's essential now in understanding this passage to get an idea of what the people's understanding of divorce was in Jesus' day. What did they think about divorce? What did the Pharisees think about divorce? Now in Jesus' day, there were two, two main rabbinical schools or two main schools of thought within the Pharisees' camp. And this was one, the school of Shammai, and the other, the school of Hillel. Shammai and Hillel were both famous teachers of the law in Jesus' day. They both, died around, they both died before Jesus. One died about 20 AD and one died about 30 AD. It is entirely likely that when Jesus was 12 years old and when he went to the temple and was asking questions and he, went, he was... Uh, probing the teachers of the law, it was entirely likely that Jesus would have been discussing the law with Shammai and Hillel. Now, Shammai and Hillel, the leading rabbis in the first century, 
um, were completely different with one another. Well, I wouldn't say completely, but they were, they were very different with one another. One was strict, and one was very liberal. One was extremely conservative in his interpretation of the law, and one was very not conservative, very liberal. One was very nice, as history tells us. Hillel, the liberal, non-conservative guy, was a really nice, um, accommodating person. And Shammai, Hillel was the uh, liberal one, and Shammai, the hard-nosed one, the strict one, he was often very mean. And there's lots of stories about these guys where it, it, would, it would describe the difference between how they would deal with people when they came to him a question. Um, one time a Gentile asked Shammai if he could become a, a priest, and Shammai chased him off with a stick. Um, the same Gentile went to Hillel to ask if he could become a priest, and Hillel basically explained to him why he couldn't become a priest, and, and that won the Gentile to Judaism. And so there's all these stories that they have. It was said that what Shammai bound, Hillel loosed, and what Hillel bound, Shammai loosed. <laughs> that was the... That was the way that things were in Jesus' day. And this is, their, this is their school's thoughts concerning divorce. And I'm just going to quote to you out of the Mishnah. The school of Shammai says, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. As it is said, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 24, because he has found in her indecency in a matter. But the school of Hillel says he may divorce her even if she burns his food. As it is said, because he has found in her indecency in a matter. Okay? <laughs> Same verse, and they interpret it differently. And you can imagine which one was the popular one. Hillel. <laughs> Hillel was accepted. Hillel's views on this point was the popular one. Divorce in Jesus' day was allowed in the widest possible cases. If you didn't like something about your wife, you were permitted to divorce her. And that could be if she smells bad, if she doesn't look good to you, if she burns your food, if she oversalts your food, whatever. If she yells at you and the neighbors can hear it, you can divorce her. Whatever reason. <laughs> Now, it's also important to notice that in Jesus' di day, divorce was actually not very common. And so we're not to think that because this was their viewpoint, and it indeed was, we're not to think that divorce was common. First of all, divorce was very costly in Jesus' day. Um, one of the safeguards uh, that would balance out this view is that if you were to divorce, you had to pay a large sum of money to your wife when she went. And frankly, men didn't have the money to pay to get divorced. There's even a story of a rabbi who wanted to get divorced, and he couldn't. <laughs> he didn't have the money. Also, the social stigma of getting divorced. Divorce was not seen as a good thing uh, in Israel, even though you were allowed to divorce for whatever reason. It wasn't seen as something good, as you can obviously see from Malachi. I, the Lord, hate putting away. And so while they had this view of marriage that basically if your wife bothers you, you can throw her out. There was actually not, divorce wasn't that common in Jesus' day. But their understanding of divorce does show their deficiency in their thinking towards women and towards marriage. So even though they didn't get divorced often, 
There was a great lack of understanding. Their thinking was wrong concerning marriage and women. And what follows in our text is Jesus' most comprehensive teaching on marriage and divorce. You scour Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and this is it. Much of what Mark and Luke have to say is already here, and Matthew says things that they don't record. So here we have Jesus' most comprehensive teaching on marriage and divorce, Matthew 19, 4 to uh, 9. The teachings of Jesus, brothers and sisters, the teaching of Jesus on marriage and on women revolutionized our world. Wherever the New Testament has gone, it has revolutionized the way that society has thought and operated towards women and towards marriage. One only needs to read missionary biographies of Christian missionaries who would go to parts of the world and the, the horror that these missionaries would find when they go to these different cultures that were not exposed to the Bible and were not exposed to the New Testament, the way that they treated women. One also just needs to read the history of the ancient world, um, and you see that women are generally treated as second-class citizens. A famous saying of the great Greek philosopher Aristotle was that a woman is somewhere between a man and a slave. That's about where the value of women lies. Somewhere between that. Notice you couldn't quite pin it down. Basically, women were seen as the property, uh, or the, excuse me, the wife was seen as the property of the husband. This was true in the cultured Greek and Roman era and time and society. It's also true, unfortunately, in Jesus' day in the first century. Now, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia rightly observes, quote, under pagan culture and heathen darkness, woman was universally subject to inferior and degrading conditions, and every decline in her status in the Hebrew commonwealth was due to the incursion of foreign influences. So where there was this decline in the status and treatment of women in Israel, it was due to outside influences. Basically, the problem here is not from the Bible. A person can't say, the problem, the reason why women are mistreated and seen as second class and are seen as property is because we get our teachings from the Bible. That's not true. It's because we don't get our teachings from the Bible. And we become influenced by the society and the culture around us. The same is true today. But Jesus puts it right. Jesus writes what is wrong. James Hurley, in his book, Man and Woman in Biblical Perspective, writes this. The foundation stone of Jesus' attitude toward women was his vision of them as persons to whom and for whom he had come. A woman to Jesus was someone that he had come to save. He did not perceive them primarily in terms of their sex, age, or marital status. He seems to have considered them in terms of their relation to God. That's how Jesus saw women, as persons, 
as persons like men created in the image of God, sinners who are responsible for their sins and who need saving. That's how Jesus saw them. Now, it doesn't mean he didn't see them as women and he, and he, he didn't have any uh, difference between man and woman in his mind. James Hurley said he primarily saw them this way. The Bible does teach us in the Old Testament that men and women are men and women and they're different and they have different roles. But it also teaches us that both men and women are created in the image of God, are persons, are sinners, and are loved by God equally, right? So we're not here saying that the Bible basically says there's no difference, but that there's no inequality in their value or their personhood. There's no such thing as second-class humans to God. James Borland writes this, Jesus demonstrated only the highest regard for women in both his life and teaching. He recognized the intrinsic equality of men and women and continually showed the worth and dignity of women as persons. Jesus valued their fellowship, prayers, service, financial support, testimony, and witness. You've probably heard this before, but one of the shocking things about the New Testament is that the first witnesses of the resurrection are women, something unheard of in Jesus' day or in the ancient world, which, which basically didn't accept the testimony of women. Charles Spurgeon tells of a missionary in India. And this missionary in India was sharing the Bible with the people, the Hindu people, and a Hindu woman said to this missionary, quote, surely your Bible was written by a woman. <laughs> and the reason why she said this is because our religious teachers would never talk about us in such a kind and honoring way. And this isn't just in the New Testament, but in the Old also. While there is difference, there is no difference in value before the eyes of God. And so Jesus puts it right. And Jesus' answer here, brothers and sisters, shows us, as usual, his transcendent understanding of the law, his superior grasp of the scriptures over the scribes, and also that Jesus never plays it safe in the hopes of being popular. Right? His answer here shows us these things. They think they can stump him out of the law. Jesus knows the law better than all of them put together, and more. And they think that they can make him odious in the eyes of the people. Jesus doesn't care about that. Right? We see what Jesus is ultimately concerned with. Jesus is kind of, or I should put it this way, um, another example in history would be Martin Luther. Martin Luther learned from Jesus what the truly free man is. The truly free man is the man or the woman who knows the word of God, who knows what God says, and who doesn't care what men have to say. That's the truly free man. What God says is the only thing I care about. What God thinks is the only thing I care about. I don't care what men think about me. I only care what God thinks and what God says. We can learn a lesson from both of them. Verse 4 and 5. Let's look at Jesus' answer. Notice Jesus has nothing but the highest respect for the scriptures. Have you not read 
it reminds you of his temptation with the devil when the devil came to test him. And he said, it is written. Jesus is dealing with people who are inspired by the devil. And Jesus here says, have you not read? And he quotes from Genesis chapter 1, that he which made them in the beginning made them male and female. That's Genesis chapter 1. And said, verse 5, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Genesis chapter 2. So by the way, you've probably heard people say Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 contradict, the, contradict each other. Well, not according to Jesus. Jesus quotes from both of them freely. Jesus sees that they are scripture, that they are one. Jesus points to creation. He points to God's design, God's intention when he created the world. Basically, he's saying, has anyone stopped to ask what God, who created marriage, thinks about it? Because God created marriage according to scripture. God is the author of this. What does he think about it? What did he intend? Marriage, brothers and sisters, and this is extremely important to understand, is not a mere social convention. Marriage is not just about the convenience of the partners that are involved. Some might think that that's what marriage is. We get married because it's convenient. We get married because we need to reproduce, says the evolutionist. We get married because it helps society. According to Jesus, no. Marriage is not about those things. Marriage is from God at the beginning, before there was society. Marriage is not a man-made production that can be fiddled with by man's whims. It's all about God. It's all about what God has designed. It's all about his intention. And Jesus shows us here in these quotes that men and women are created by God for the purpose of being one. So in verse 4 he says, Don't, Haven't you read that God in the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one? That's why he created male and female. Do you think God created male and female and just afterwards said, Hey, look, they kind of... They kind of fit together, actually. <laughs> he intended it to be so. He created man and woman to be together and to be united as one. The relationship between a husband and wife is the closest relationship of all. It's more close than a, hus than a child with his parent. It's longer if you don't die, right? You have kids, you raise them, about 20, they go. If all goes normal, um, you find that, hey, I've been married longer than I've been around with my parents, right? And it goes on and on. I've been married 40 years, 50 years, if all goes well. And it's more intimate than a relationship with a parent and a child. Those are special relationships, parents and children. But God in the beginning didn't create parent and child. God in the beginning created man and woman and brought them together in order for them to be one. That is the profound relationship of marriage. God is the one who's the author of it. In verse 6, Jesus says, Therefore, he draws a conclusion, they are no more two, but one. They are 
no longer two, but one. He's not saying they're supposed to be no longer two, but one. So people who are married, you should act like you are not two, but one, because you're supposed to be. He's, he's making a matter, he's stating a matter of fact. If you are married, you are no longer two, but one. You used to be two, but now you're not. Two-ness is gone. Brothers and sisters, t- in God's sight, and the way things are, two entities are lost, and a new entity has been created. And the new entity that's been created is the kind of entity that cannot be added to further. That's the nature of this oneness. Do you know anything about medical science? You know that when procreation takes place and the seed and the egg come together, the moment the seed and the egg come together, what that creates is sealed and nothing more can attach itself to it. That becomes a sealed, exclusive, closed new entity. In a sense, the production of children is a picture of what happens when we get married. The two become one, and you're no longer two, but you're one, and a kind of entity that cannot be added to further. In this, it does, this, this does away with casual sex, homosexuality, polygamy, anything other than what Jesus is describing here as marriage. This is what marriage and sexuality and man and womanhood is all about. What God, verse 6, see how Jesus is pointing the finger upward. What God has joined together, let no man separate. God is the one who's done this. And this is marriage to Christ. He's changing our perspective from earth to heaven. R.T. France writes, To see divorce as man undoing the work of God puts the whole issue in a radically new perspective. Now in light of this absolute statement of Jesus about what marriage is and therefore it shouldn't be torn asunder, the Pharisees in verse 7 have an objection. They object. Well, hold on here. You're making sort of a big absolute statement about marriage and not tearing it asunder. I asked you about divorce. You answered me what marriage is. Why then did Moses command us to write a certificate of divorcement? Deuteronomy 24 is the place that they're referring to, the only place in the law where divorce is discussed. Why then did Moses command that we, if you're going to divorce, you write a certificate of divorcement? Jesus answers by saying, first of all, Moses did not command you He allowed you. Moses suffered divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. So even in the law, divorce isn't something that God looks upon with his favor. Divorce isn't something that God says, because because it's here, you can do it. It shouldn't even be here. And the only reason it's here is because the hardness of your heart. Because your hearts are so hard and you'll put away your wives, then 
let's just try to make it as less messy as we possibly can, write a certificate of divorce. He's suffering it to be so, but he's not commanding it to be so. And it's safe to say in the light of this, brothers and sisters, and we can say this with broken hearts, that wherever there is divorce, there there is hardness of heart. Divorce is not God's way. I, the Lord, hate divorce, Malachi 2.16. Wherever there is a divorce, you can be sure that in that place, there's hardness of heart, right? On someone's part. Someone had a hard heart, or both had a hard heart, but there was a hard heart. And Jesus is saying, look, just because Moses said that, don't miss what marriage is. Because the point is not what men, through their own sinfulness, allow, but what God has designed from the beginning. That's what's important. In verse 9, Jesus repeats his solemn judgment concerning marriage. He repeats it because he already said it in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5.32, Jesus said this same thing, and he repeats it here. He hasn't changed on his position in light of the crowds or in light of the challenge. I say unto you, whoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery, and whoso marries her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Now the emphasis in this saying is not on the clause, except it be for fornication. That's not the emphasis of the verse. The weight of the verse does not lie there, although we often read it in that way. We often think Jesus is making a statement about when you can divorce. Now, it is absolutely true that Jesus does say that there is a place where it is permissible to divorce. If it be if, if there's fornication involved, or more specifically, if there's adultery involved, then divorce is permissible. But the emphasis lies not there. The emphasis is on how we are not permitted to divorce for any other reason. That's the emphasis. Because the question was, hey, can we divorce for every cause like Hillel says? And he says, no, that's the emphasis. No. If you divorce your wife and marry another, you're committing adultery. Unless it's for adultery or fornication that you divorce, then what you're doing is sin. Now, in light of this statement, it is abundantly true that not all divorces in the eyes of men were divorces in the eyes of God. Right? Based on this saying. Because many people get divorced and it doesn't have to do with adultery. And according to Jesus, that was sin. And in God's eyes, that was sin. It was not a true divorce, and therefore, it became adultery. Jesus tells us the unacceptable reasons for divorce. They're implicit in this saying. Incompatibility is not an acceptable reason for divorce. Disagreeable habits, things you don't like about your spouse, that is not an acceptable reason for divorce. Lack of love is not an acceptable reason for divorce. Money issues, 
not an acceptable reason for divorce. Lack of chemistry, lack of excitement, not an acceptable reason for divorce. Abuse, as bad as it is, not an acceptable reason for divorce. Differing goals, not an acceptable reason for divorce. Differing religions, not an acceptable reason for divorce. And every other imaginable sin under the sun besides adultery, not an acceptable reason for divorce. That's pretty comprehensive. That shocked um, the followers of Hillel. And I think it shocks many people today as well. What we learn here, Charles Erdman writes correctly, that marriage is not to be entered lightly because it's permanent. Because it's a total, unreserved, exclusive cleaving to your spouse. And the disciples caught that, didn't they, in verse 10? Whoa! Well, if that's what marriage is, then uh, it's probably a good thing not to get married. (laughs) Because they knew, as well as all of us, marriage is not easy if that's what it is. Brothers and sisters, just, just because we say marriage should not be entered lightly doesn't mean that marriage is easy, even if you're careful, right? <laughs> I'm not here saying that make sure you choose the right spouse because then it will all be roses. It's not. It's hard enough if you're careful. And so don't excuse yourself by saying, I didn't enter it lightly, that's why it's hard. No, It's hard no matter what, because what it means is you as a sinner and another sinner are together as one, not to be dissolved. What it means is you're going to need love, and that's a hard thing for us as sinners to conjure up, isn't it? (laughs) Love. Forgiveness. And one might ask, why did God make it like this? Now we see God's heart and we see God's wisdom. Why did he make marriage like that? Why did he make marriage where two people come together and are united and are not to be divorced? What God has put together, no one's to separate. And it's going to be hard and it's all about love and faithfulness and forgiveness. Why would he make, oh, well, now I think we're starting to see why. Of course God made it like that because that's what God's all about, isn't it? Faithfulness, love, forgiveness, unity, long-suffering in the light of sin. And brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches us clearly in the New Testament that marriage is a divinely created picture of Jesus Christ and the church, right? Marriage is a divinely created picture of Jesus Christ and the church. It shows us, when we look at marriage as as it is designed to be by God, we see Christ's relationship to sinful man. Oneness, faithfulness, love, and forgiveness. Isn't it a beautiful thing? Because that's what marriage symbolizes. And when you see a married couple that's together, and they've been together for since the beginning, and they've not been divorced... It doesn't mean that they have had no sin issues, but what it means is there's oneness and unity and faithfulness and love there. And that is a picture of Christ and the church. Adultery alone destroys this beautiful picture. It's interesting that sin doesn't necessarily destroy it. 
the picture is loud and clear, even if there's sin behind closed doors. When people look at a married couple, they think, yep, that is a picture of Jesus and the church not being dissolved. Adultery alone destroys this picture. And in that sense, adultery is a form of death because, adu- because adultery destroys what marriage is designed to be. Once there's adultery there, then marriage has been defiled in its purpose and in its picture because what, the faithfulness wasn't there. The unity wasn't there. The love wasn't there. And for this reason, divorce is permissible because the meaning of marriage is broken. Death has, in a sense, already taken place. However, and this is a big however, brothers and sisters, we who believe in Jesus Christ believe that Jesus Christ, who reveals to us what God is like, is all about miraculous reconciliation and restoration of what is irreparably broken by man, right? That's what Jesus is all about. That's what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not about people doing the right things all the time. Christianity is about people who have been broken through sin, irreparably broken, that are miraculously reconciled and restored to purity and blamelessness before God through the blood of Jesus. That's what Christianity is all about, the restoring of what is broken. And I want you to notice that in verse 9, Jesus does not say that you should get divorced if there's fornication or adultery. He's not saying if there's fornication or adultery, okay, divorce. He's saying that is a permissible reason. You may get divorced in that case. But he's not saying to do it. And in fact, if we take our cues from the Lord God, what you find in the Bible is God being faithful and not divorcing those who are adulterous towards him. That's what Christianity is all about, isn't it? That's the story of the Bible, the main story of the Bible. God created man for himself. Man sinned against God adulterously, and their relationship is irreparably broken. Men cannot fix it. It's humanly impossible. What was is not, is gone. And though we were adulterous, God did what is humanly impossible. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for our sins. Something miraculous, brothers and sisters. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not, oh yeah, of course, it's miraculous. It could not have been fixed but by the power of of God. And the blood of Jesus Christ alone heals us and restores us and makes us blameless in the sight of God and restores our relationship to God, what was broken. Such is the story as it's captured in the book of Hosea. In the book of Hosea, God tells the prophet to go and, and love an adulterous woman to show how he loves his people. And the woman is unfaithful to Hosea, but Hosea buys the woman back from slavery. Irreparably broken. Marriage is destroyed. The meaning of marriage is destroyed, and yet he buys her back, and he loves her, 
and washes her and restores her. Hosea chapter 2, God says this to his people in verse 19 and 20. He says, I will betroth you unto me forever. He's speaking to the adulterous wife, the one who's already fornicated and broken what marriage is supposed to be irreparably. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. This is what the Lord is all about. You're going to know what I'm like when I take something that's dead and broken, something that's pained me and hurt me, and I've loved you, and restored you. So the good news is so wonderful. When we sin against God, yes, we feel, I've done it, it's over, my relationship with God is broken. Brothers and sisters, there's hope for sinners in that Jesus died for us, and in righteousness and loving kindness, he redeems us to himself. All a person does, all a person needs to do is believe who God is. The only thing that keeps a sinner from God is unbelief in who God is. And there's also good news for marriages, because if there's unfaithfulness in your marriage or adultery in your marriage, your marriage can be healed as well through Jesus Christ. Because you or your spouse can be forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ and also forgive one another. And in a sense, that then becomes a beautiful picture of Christ in the church. That then becomes another picture of what God is like and what God does. Of course, I will add this, that Jesus said divorce was permissible because of fornication, and divorce happens because of hardness of heart. If you have a spouse who was unfaithful to you and does not want to be with you, just like when a person doesn't believe in God and the gospel, God doesn't force them to come back. And so there are cases, sadly, where restoration cannot happen in a marriage that's been broken because one of the partners doesn't want it or both of the partners doesn't want it. And in that case, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you're not bound to stay married. So there is freedom for those who have a situation that's difficult like that, which also is a picture of God and sinners. Jesus goes on to say that nor is singleness to be despised. Singleness is never despised in the Bible. Whether you're single by circumstances or by birth, or by choosing, Jesus honors singleness by calling it a gift from God. Marriage, singleness, and even broken marriages are all opportunities to serve God in different ways and to show forth his amazing gospel and to show forth our amazing and awesome God. And in closing, in verse 13, we have a very happy connection in the next scene, which connects, which is a happy connection between this scene and the scene that went before. And what do we see? We see children. Children are the blessed product of marriage. And children are those who are hurt most by divorce. In verse 13, we see little children are being brought to Jesus so that Jesus could pray for them. And the disciples rebuke 
them from bringing the children to Jesus. As we saw a few weeks ago, children are insignificant, and the disciples were probably thinking, the master is so busy. He's healing people. He's teaching law, and we don't have time for insignificance. (laughs) Jesus again teaches disciples. Jesus rebukes them. Let them come to me. Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You're still thinking in terms of human greatness. You're still thinking in terms of of significance. You need to realize that God loves those who aren't great. God loves the insignificant. The child is now a picture of that. And Jesus taking the child in his arms and blessing them is a picture of how Jesus blesses the nobodies and the poor in spirits even though men would seek to say, you can't come to Jesus like that. That's exactly the only way you can come to Jesus, is as a nobody. And Jesus is happy and wanting to scoop you up and to bless you. So we see here the tender compassion and love of Jesus. A.B. Bruce thinks that it's entirely conceivable that Christians came out of this experience, that those children at least some of them, might have become Christians later on in their life. A.B. Bruce writes, the results of this meeting are conceivable. Christians may have come out of that company. Mothers would not forget him who blessed their children on the way to the cross. Remember, he's just about to die. Nor fail to speak of the events, this event, to those when they were older, to the children when they were older. Don't you think it's entirely conceivable? And this is a bit speculative, but don't you think that the mothers could have saw the tenderness of Jesus and the death of Jesus had become believers in Jesus and taught their kids? You know, when you were a child, Jesus took you up in his arms and loved you. That was shocking in his day, right? Because the disciples were saying, get get them. And who knows if Christians did not come out of this experience. The question is, in closing, will we here today also hear of the beautiful Savior and will we put our faith in him as well? Those children are probably too young to remember Jesus, so their relationship to Jesus is probably much like ours. They only heard of it. Did you know that Jesus picked you up in his arms? He put his hands on you and blessed you in tenderness and love. He kissed you. He rebuked his own disciples so that you could come to him? And they're like, really? Yeah, he did that. They didn't have video cameras. They didn't have Kodak. It wasn't a Kodak moment. (laughs) But they believed, or they might have believed. It's entirely conceivable. It's the same here. Did you know, brothers and sisters, did you know that Jesus came out of heaven to die on a cross for your sins? Did you know that he laid his life down willingly in love for you as a sinner, in tenderness and compassion for you who were adulterous towards him, who hurt his heart. He, he created you for himself and all we like sheep went astray from him willingly because we didn't love him and we chased after other things that hurt him because we're selfish and that he came out of heaven and died on the cross for your sins to take the punishment that you deserve. And what was humanly impossible to fix, he fixed it through the blood of his, of his cross. Did you know that? You think, really? Was there any video cameras? No. Kodak moment? No. Will we too hear of the beautiful Savior and put our faith in him? Because in the beginning, God created us for himself. 
and in the fullness of time, he came to restore what was broken and beyond human repair. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to put your hope and your trust and your faith in the only one who can restore you and can make you whole. Whiter than snow, you can be this day. In closing, hear the words of Isaiah, the prophet, and apply them to yourself. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, your redeemer. Let's pray. Father, your love for us is so deep. Your forgiveness is so great. How you would love us, Lord, in such an amazing way that you'd seek those who sinned against you. That you'd die for us. Lord, your love is so amazing and we thank you that you created us for yourself and that marriage is a picture of our relationship with you. And even broken marriage can be redeemed, Lord, for your glory. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of Jesus and what he's done for us. And Lord, you truly are worthy of all of our praise. We find ourselves, Lord, just swallowed up in your vastness and your greatness that you'd love us. Lord, thank you for how simple it all is and how wonderful it all is. We bless your name. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.